Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. How you doing, man? How's life? All right, to to start out the story today, Jesus has another run-in with the Pharisees, this time over a, a conflict that has happened before of him and his disciples washing their hands. I don't know, maybe they're germaphobes. Maybe some of you can relate. Really, though, Jesus is concerned that they're missing it. They are so stressed out about being obedient, about being a good boy, about being a good girl, about protecting the integrity of the church, of upholding the law, that they are missing it. And Jesus calls them out with some examples of missing it relevant to their time. And he says, basically, you're making the word of God of none effect through your traditions. Many such like things do you. Let let me ask you just this right off the bat. Their culture, their tradition, their habits, their practices um, are, are holding them back. Is there something in our culture, in your culture, in your traditions, in your habits, in your practices that you do in the name of being good, in the name of protecting the church, in the name of being obedient, that really doesn't serve light, that really doesn't serve others or serve God? Are there things you're doing trying so hard to be like Jesus that you aren't like Jesus? I know that like I'm coming at you a little bit strong right one minute into the podcast, but I just want you to consider that. And this is not something to consider to beat yourself up, but like, honestly, it might be to to stop trying so hard to be perfect here. Steinbeck says it this way in East of Eden, which is outstanding, by the way. Uh, I know you didn't like Steinbeck in high school, but give him another chance now that you're old. He says, and now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. Let that sink in for a minute. After this, Jesus goes off uh, again, telling uh, these guys to stop stressing about all these outward acts that are easy to see and check off and start paying attention to your inner transformation. But after it goes on so long, Jesus notices that people are hungry and they don't have any snacks. And thank goodness for modern granola bars. So Jesus calls to his disciples again and he says, have compassion on the multitude because they've now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away fasting to their houses, they'll faint as they travel home because they've traveled from a far way. And his disciples are like, how are we going to get bread? And again, Jesus has already fed 5,000, but still they're like, how are we going to feed them? Dude, I feel like we do this all the time. Jesus does something good for us. And then the next moment we're like, but how will it work? (laughs) And you know what I mean? We're always like, but I, I don't see, I don't know if it will work. I don't see how it will. No, stop. And Jesus simply says, how many loaves do you have? And they're like seven. He's like, have them sit down. They took a few small fish, the seven loaves of bread. He blessed them and they all eat. And there are seven baskets left over. It's about 4,000 people this time. And then he sends them away. And like, again, expect miracles. Expect 
the living God to operate and act in your life. After this moment, after this teaching, they get back into a ship and they go over to a place called Dalmanutha. This is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're there, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees come again arguing like, like he has, uh, has, I don't know, found their wrath. They're, they're going to come at him over and over until the end here. And so they, they come and they're tempting him and, and they want him to show them a sign. And he's like, okay, when it's evening, you say, it's going to be good weather tomorrow because the sky is red. And in the morning, you're going, you're, you're say, ah, it's going to be bad weather today because the sky is red and lowering. He's like, come on, guys. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. We've already been through that, right? And after this whole conversation, uh, they're traveling and his disciples haven't brought bread. And Jesus says, take heed and beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they, they're, they're like talking to each other and he's like, he's talking about yeast or leaven because we haven't brought any bread. And Jesus like perceives that they don't get it. And I wonder if he's ever like just frustrated that they never get it. Like he just fed 5,000 and then they're like, how are we going to feed them? And he's like, beware of the yeast of the, the, the Pharisees. And, he, and they're like, oh, crap, we forgot bread. And he's like, oh, my gosh, seriously. And Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith. Why reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand? Neither remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up and the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many loaves you took up? We're not talking about bread. I just fed 7,000. What's wrong with you? Like, how is it that you don't understand that I'm not speaking about bread? Like, it's a metaphor, people. He's like, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood how he's telling them that it's the doctrine of the Pharisees. Well, what is the doctrine of the Pharisees? In Luke, he, he records it well. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, I don't know if Luke adds this um, because it's not in the other section that, that the leaven or the yeast is hypocrisy. I don't know if that comes from later explanation or that um, Luke came to understand this sometime or if Jesus actually said it. So Jesus is saying, beware of hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy comes from Greek and it means acting a feigned part or acting the part of a stage player, being a play actor instead. Why is Jesus so upset about them acting a part? Like, because they're acting a good part. They're acting the part of an obedient person. Why is he mad about that? Like fake it till you make it, right? Like if you don't get it, like just try hard. Why is Jesus so upset that they're trying to be good if, they're, if it's kind of a show though? 
Is it that like they're missing the point of inner transformation when they're just looking uh, at how they look? Is it that we miss our inner transformation when we're just worried about optics? I don't know, man. Like it's so hard because like I think we all feel like we're not there yet. And so we all to a certain degree feel like we're playing a part, faking it to a certain degree in our discipleship. Maybe if you feel like you have made it as a disciple of Christ, maybe that's when you should re-examine things. But even, I don't know, even if as I say that, like, I don't know that Jesus wants us to live our life always questioning, always being like, am I good enough? Always thinking about yourself nonstop. Like, that doesn't seem like the right tone either. I don't know. Hypocrisy, like, seems to come on really strong when you're throwing stones at other people for being fakers and posers and tryhards while lauding yourself for being real and authentic and genuine. So maybe just be careful with judging other people's authenticity. I don't know, man. This one's tricky as heck. I think you're most hypocrite while calling somebody else out. How do we avoid hypocrisy? How do we avoid play acting? And sure as heck, don't spend a bunch of time thinking about our role and planning out how to best play the part. That's a recipe for hypocrisy if I've ever seen one. I honestly only see one solution here. It's to be here in the moment, 100%. Accepting your flaws, accepting your imperfections, your awkwardness, your anxiety, and just be there Just be here right now. That's really the only solution I see. And it's one that Jesus has taught regularly up to this point. I don't know, consider that. After this, Jesus gets up and he goes to the borders of Tyre and Sidon. And he enters into a house and would have nobody know it, but he can't be hid. Like people just find out the gossip spreads and people seek him out. And there's a woman who comes to him who has a young daughter that has an unclean spirit, it says. And this woman comes to him and falls at his feet. Now, she, she's a Syrophoenician. Uh, she's like Greek. Basically, it means that she's not of the, the house of Israel right here. And she, she's like, please cast the devil out of my daughter. And Jesus says, let the children first be filled. It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Dogs is slang for Gentiles right here. Jesus is being super harsh right here. Refusing to heal a a, a little girl in need because she is not the correct um identity, heritage, race, whatever you want to say. And then the woman answers, yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says, for this saying, go thy way. The devil has gone out of thy daughter. And when she was coming to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon her bed. That's not very Christ-like. 
That's interesting. But notice what happens for miracles. She gets the blessing, A, because she asks, but not just because she asks. It is fulfilled because she is clever, resilient, and persistent. When it comes to the miracles you seek in your life, can you say the same? Are you clever, resilient, and persistent? If not, let's try again today. That's really this, what the story is saying. After this, he leaves the area and I can't help but think that he actually came because the woman is there. And he goes to the Sea of Galilee and he goes to Decapolis, a pretty large city. And while he's there, there's a deaf man who cannot speak who comes to him. And they ask him to heal him. Now, Jesus heals in a, uh, in a variety of ways, but watch how he heals here. Like previously, he just spoke it and it happened, even from a distance. But here, he puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits and he touches his tongue. And then he looks up to heaven. He sighs. It's interesting that he sighs. And he says, be opened. Again, this language of command when it comes to miracles is interesting. I'm curious about your approach when you're seeking miracles in your life. And immediately the deaf man's ears were opened and the, his tongue was loosed and he spake plainly. And Jesus tells them that sigh. He's like, don't tell people about that. But the more he tells people this, the more they just tell everybody. They're like, this guy's amazing. They were beyond measure astonished. Like this guy, Jesus, he's such a compelling figure. They, they leave the, the area of Decapolis and they go up to Bethsaida here. And this time a blind man comes. And Jesus takes the blind man by the hand and leads him outside of the city limits. There, he spits on his eyes and puts his hands upon him and asks this man if he saw anything. And the man says, I see people, but they kind of look vaguely clumpy like trees. It's like trees are walking. So he puts his hands again upon this man's eyes and then made him look up and he was restored and the man saw very clearly. Now this is an interesting thing because it's a staged healing. It's bit by bit. And now, however your miracles come, I think you should expect miracles in your life. We are not in an ethics class. We are in religion. The very word religion means to tie to something sacred, to bind to something holy and otherworldly and supernatural. What do you want? Like for real, what do you legit really, really want? then go to God and ask, ask with boldness. And I'm saying not even with begging, but thanking God like it has already happened and come. Put all your emotion and your trust and your faith and your reliance in God. Go full send for once in your life and see how it goes. Try it. Let go of this fear that maybe it won't work. Stop. Maybe it won't. Maybe God's got something different. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go full send. 
That doesn't mean you shouldn't emotionally trust him with all your soul and thank him for the miracles he is going to provide. And Jesus leaves the, this area of Bethsaida and following this goes to a, another place called uh, Caesarea Philippi. And as they're walking, and they walk everywhere. It takes a long time to get anywhere back in the day. We're talking days traveling here. Jesus starts a conversation. He says, as you have your ear to the ground, what are the people saying about me? Who do the men say that I am? And they're like, well, some people say John the Baptist. Others say it's Elias. And remember, Elias has come to prepare the way for the, the true Messiah. Others are like, you're, you're just a prophet, come. He's like, but what about you guys? What do you guys think I am? And Peter answers immediately. He's like, you are the Christ. I mean, Christ means the anointed one. This is the, the title given to the promised high priest, the promised king, come to rescue the land. Not the Christ. He's like, hey, don't be spreading that. Don't be going off and telling people, like, I am the, the Messiah, the chosen one. He's like, I have to suffer many things. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders of the church. I'm going to be rejected by the chief priests. I'm going to be rejected by the most learned and intelligent scribes of the the Torah and the scriptures. He's like, guys, I am going to be killed. And after that, after three days of being dead, I will rise again. And Peter takes him and, and begins to rebuke him. It begins to be like, Jesus, I am not going to let you suffer and die. I will protect you. This is not going to happen. And Jesus gives the most interesting response to, to Peter saying, I don't want you to suffer. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Remember, Satan means basically adversary or accuser. Thou savorest not the things of God, but the things that are of men. Whoa. (laughs) The things of men are to avoid hardship. The things of men are to avoid suffering, to have things go smoothly and easily. And, And he... Jesus is saying when you present life like there's an expectation that you shouldn't have any pain. He's like, that's not a godlike idea. Being a god is being a creative force within the chaos and pain. It is not the avoidance of pain. After this, after talking about this, he says, you have got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross. Like the, the, this is so vivid for them where they carry the instrument of their own hours long, days long, torturous demise and death. He's like, take up your pain, lean into it and follow me into this chaos and pain. Because if you do this, you will have real life. Anybody who tries 
to save his life is going to lose it. Anybody who tries to avoid pain is just going to create more pain, suffering, anxiety in their life. If you try to avoid it, you will lose it. But in a magic way, if you lean into pain, if you lose your life, if you voluntarily give it up, because it's going to end either way, you will die. But if you choose to say, I'm okay with pain, I'm okay leaning into discomfort, for the gospel's sake, you find life. That's an interesting concept. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Hmm. He goes on. He's like, there are some that shall not taste death that stand here before you till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Six days later, about a week later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John and leads them up to a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus is transfigured before them. What this means, it means that he becomes shining. He is spiritually changed in a way that it affects his physical form. Ah, the physics of this is pretty spectacular. He becomes exceedingly full of light till he radiates this color white of all the colors in a, in a brilliance beyond their physical perce- perception where it just becomes a blinding white like snow. Is that, they're like, there is nothing on this earth that is as white and brilliant as he is. And as Jesus is physically transformed in this spiritual moment, Elijah and Moses appear and talk to Jesus, just like happens later with Joseph Smith. And Peter watches this whole thing, and after it's over, he says to Jesus, Master, this is good. It's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, three worship centers, three Ebenezers here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Some of the the greatest prophets of all time, Peter is saying. And the reason he says this, it says, because he didn't know what to say. And he was sore afraid. Like, here's the thing. Peter doesn't get just what happened. He has no idea what's going on. But there's a cloud that then overshadows them and they hear a voice out of this cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then it's over. And Jesus tells them to keep it to themselves for a while till after he's resurrected. And they they kept it to themselves, but... The whole time they're just questioning one with another what he's talking about rising from the dead, what this whole Elijah, Moses, Jesus thing means for them. And we know that it means that this delegation of keys, but it reminds me of Brigham Young's experience with keys. Like Brigham Young is on a mission campaign for Joseph to be president of the United States when he finds out that Joseph has been murdered. Like when he reads the letter... He feels like his head is going to crack. 
His thoughts instantly go to the priesthood. He knows that Jesus, Joseph had held the priesthood keys necessary to endow the taint saints in the temple and seal them together for eternity. And without those keys, the work of the Lord couldn't move forward. And for a moment, Brigham fears that Joseph had taken the keys to the grave. Now, Joseph, for his part, had clearly passed them on on March 1844. And Joseph calls a meeting with the 12 and he says, It may be that my enemies will kill me. And in case they should, and the keys and power which rest upon me shall not be imparted to you, they will be lost from the earth. And so upon the shoulders of the 12 must the responsibility of leading this church henceforth rest until, they sh until the, you shall appoint others to succeed you. So even though Joseph has clearly passed on the keys, it's not super clear to the man who holds the keys. Same thing with jo Jesus and Peter right here. Brigham says in a burst of revelation, he remembers how Joseph had bestowed the keys upon the 12 and he brings his hand down hard on his knees and he says, the keys of the kingdom are right here with the church. But, but here's a question I have on this. Why doesn't it Jesus... Why doesn't Heavenly Father make it easier for us? Why doesn't he make it more plain? Like, why isn't there a policy manual that says, okay, step A, you just received ceiling keys that can endow people with more power. Like, why is he so opaque? I honestly think God wants us to live a good story. And if he gave us all the details, it would be nice and safe, but it would also be lame and stupid. And frankly, we wouldn't learn. I'm telling you, we wouldn't. There's a de desirable degree of difficulty that, that makes it so that we retain anything. Um, and so they, they start asking Jesus because of this experience. And they're like, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Because you're already here and I don't remember seeing Elijah. Again, the opaqueness of this all. And Jesus says, Elijah did come for, um, verily, Elijah verily cometh first and restores all things how it is written that the son of man, that he must suffer and be set for it's not. But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come. He's like, Elijah did come already. And so he's referring both to John the Baptist as a forerunner and as Elijah coming here. Um, and then foreshadowing Elijah coming in the restoration here. And when Jesus came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning them. And immediately when Jesus arrives, they're amazed and they run to Jesus. And he asks the scribes, what questions do you have? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I've brought unto thee my son. He has a dumb spirit. And we were trying to get your disciples to help him, but they can't. But my boy, he, he, the spirit teareth him and he foameth and he snaps his teeth together and he's just alone and in agony and it's so bad. And I asked your disciples if they could cast him out and they could not. And Jesus said, O faithless generation, Man, I, I don't know what to say about this, but it seems like the most frequent like 
claim Jesus makes about the people that proclaim to follow him is that they really don't trust. Ah, I, I really, really, really think he would say the exact same thing about us. When are you going to full send trust? Where are you going to completely trust? And with all your emotions, with all your mind, with all your soul. It's like, I'm not going to be with you forever. Bring me your boy. And they brought the boy to him. And as he comes up, he, the, this spirit tear him. The boy falls on the ground, wallowing and foaming. And Jesus asks the dad, how long has it been this way? And the dad says, since he was a small child. And it takes him at random times. And sometimes he falls into the fire or sometimes into water. It almost is like it's seeking to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. And Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. One of the best lines in the whole New Testament, the father of the child immediately says with tears in his eyes, Lord, I believe Help thou mine unbelief. Ooh, maybe one of the best prayers ever. I believe I'm trying. I'm trying. Help me. Help me. I've prayed that prayer. Straight desperation, I've prayed that prayer. And Jesus rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit. I charge thee to come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out. And the boy's laying on the ground like he's dead. Some of the people are whispering, Jesus killed him, he's dead. But Jesus takes the boy by the hand and lifts him up and he arose. After the whole event, they go home and the disciples are like, why couldn't we cast him out? We believed. We were trying. We knew it was a good thing. And he says, this kind come forth by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. As you seek your miracles, consider that. And so they, they depart and they pass through Galilee. And he taught his disciples that the Son of Man is to be delivered unto men and they shall kill him. And after he is killed, he shall arise on the third day. But they understood him not, and they were afraid to ask him. Oh, the realness of this story is so awesome. This guy they love and respect so much is saying things, and they don't get it. They love him, and they're trusting, and they're following him, and they're too intimidated and nervous to ask him about it. Man, this is interesting. I think it's such a symbol of our own life. You don't get to live life in reverse, meaning you don't get to know the end from the beginning. You have no idea what is coming in your life. Honestly, you're just making it up as you go. 
it's like like a a stressful improv nonstop. Life is just a nonstop improv. And sometimes you kill it, and sometimes it may flop. But I'm asking you to dare to try. Let's just try today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.